This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, and this is episode number 266. For this one, I'm in the Ballard District of Seattle. You know, we've done a lot of podcasts with brewers right here in the Ballard District. It might be one of the most focused areas uh, uh, of tightly knit brewers who uh, we've all done podcasts with because there is an incredible wealth of talent right here in the Ballard District of Seattle. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is Barry Chan of Lucky Envelope. Welcome to the podcast, Barry. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Really, uh, really appreciate you uh, reaching out to me, and I'm really excited to be here. Well, I appreciate you coming down to our Brewery Accelerator last month, or actually it was July in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, you know, it was it was fun to, to see you there. I wasn't expecting to see you. And then, of course, Juno uh, from BSG had invited you down. I was like, you know, and then uh, we got to hang out and get to spend some time together and talk and uh Thought it would be nice to what since I was up here in this area to to get a conversation in because you have a you know both a, a classical and a creative uh, element to the brewing that you do here at Lucky Envelope. Also trying to you know pull in some cultural influences from from background and try different things and uh, and uh, we're going to talk about all of that through this episode. Use very creative ingredients, but you also uh, you know focus on the beer like I'm drinking now, your Munich Helles, which I think you won a GBF medal for a number of years ago yeah, too in 2015. So that was our, that was our first medal that we won, which is a, it's a, it's a fun bar to try to, to try to keep getting, uh, sure. to try to reach. Sure. So you can brew and uh, very classic, uh, you know, approaches are very, uh, you know, to the T, to the style uh, approaches to classic styles. Um, but you also, you know, push and, uh, oh, I was just going to say, uh, you push the envelope on that one and it would just be my terrible dad joke. On <laughs> I don't, that I, I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we're going to talk about how you use creative ingredients and uh, and work them in in a in a way that's sensible and layered, um, that creates drinkable beers, uh, not necessarily stunt beers, um, that uses those ingredients in delicate but in nuanced kinds of ways. Before we do that, for nearly thirty years, G and D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. G and D stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. G and D also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design Experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipes and make a non-alcoholic version? without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality. N.A., no problem. The Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? Check out www.probrew.com to learn more about the Alchemator from ProBrew or shoot them an email at contactus at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend now a Promoc brand. So Barry, give me the lucky envelope story. 
Uh, I know we've personally talked about this before, and uh, you were part of a you know killer homebrew club with uh, a bunch of folks that have now gone pro in the Seattle you know brewing world. Uh, a nice group of contemporaries to all help each other and also bounce each other and then compete against each other at the same time. Um, but yeah, talk to me about that moment for you with craft beer. Where, where was your connection to craft beer? How'd you get into brewing, and then how'd you decide to then uh, you know make a career out of it? Yeah, uh, the way I started out was um, when I was uh, doing recruiting trips for college. And um, my first uh, craft beer I ever had. What were you being recruited for? Swimming. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. So uh, my first craft beer I ever had was a Victory Hop Devil. And uh, that beer kind of blew my blew my mind. Sure. Uh, yeah. Somebody I knew said, here, give this a little sip and... You know, I think at that time it was an it was an IPA that was 60, 70 IBUs, and I just said this is crazy, and I didn't really like it. But um, since then, I kind of became interested in craft beer, and uh, that was that was my first introduction. And from there, I would uh, go on to just go try any new beer that I could find, and uh, you know, you have your little nerdy notebook and uh, try to make those mental notes and find those styles that you like. Uh, but, uh, when in Pennsylvania, were you, uh, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. So, uh, at the end of the Weird Al Yankovic Amish paradise, uh, music sure, video, sure. it says, welcome to Lancaster. Oh, I'm familiar with it. I, uh, you know, for, I don't know, 2008, 2009 ish, uh, I was living in New York city and used to, but would manage a group that was based out of Malvern. Oh, and yeah. so I would take the train down once a week down to, to the 30th Philly station and, you know, take it back out on the line to Paoli mm-hmm. and uh, work out in Malvern. And which is also why I spent a lot of time out at victory where I could in, in Downington. Yep. Um, the original location. Yeah. Back when, yeah, that back at that original spot <laughs> or, or going to Wegmans and stocking mm-hmm. up on as much craft beer uh, that I could expense at the time. That was, that was before my time. Oh, that was after my time because when when I left Pennsylvania, you could still only buy beer at the beer distributor. Yeah, yeah. Wegmans changed that. Oh, like, and, man. And man, I don't know what they did with the law there, but you could walk in and just buy, you know, six packs right there. Oh, it's the best. That's awesome. The best. I'd hole up in my hotel room that night and just try what I could from, from anyway. anyway <laughs> that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, and then after that, my introduction to homebrewing was... Uh, at the time I was in grad school, I was in LA. So uh, I, I was in LA and I was visiting my uh, my girlfriend now, spouse, uh, Catherine. She was uh, doing uh, vet school at UC Davis. So I would, I'd do my quick little flights back and forth back when uh, with Southwest, those, you know, cheap and quick. Uh, there was a time when I got to know the bartender at the Gordon Biersch in the, uh, in the terminal at LAX. And I remember ordering a Bach and I was drinking it, and I was in you know my my IPA stage, and I said, "Man, this beer needs more hops in it. Like there needs to be more hop expression." And then Mo, the bartender, just looked at me, and I had this realization: like, oh my god, like I just made this comment about a beer, and I know nothing about the style. Like, who am I to do this? Like to have that? Uh, you know, I know what my preferences are, but like the intent of this beer. And uh, that was my realization moment that I don't, I don't know how to brew. I should probably shut up and, you know, figure it out. So it was a little challenge to myself. Once I, once I uh, finished grad school uh, at UCLA, I moved up to Seattle for, uh, a, you know, a big boy job. 
And uh, from there, I bought my first homebrew kit from Bob's Homebrew, which is uh, no longer in business, but a lot of a lot of brewers that I know, uh, professional brewers and homebrewers, get their got their start at Bob's. So there's a lot of nostalgia there, and uh, started homebrewing. And uh, you know, kind of as you start out, those few batches are okay, but uh, not great. And I wanted to learn more about it, so that's where I started uh, finding books, uh, podcasts, anything I could about it, and uh, you know, Charlie Papazian's book, uh, any. Anything I could find at that time that's still probably in the infancy of podcasts, but there were a few out there. Sure, sure. And um, the Seattle uh, Seattle Library had a really good uh, brewing reference section, so got my hands on all those, and um, kind of and my I think my beer substantially improved after that. But I'm um, kind of going back to like recruiting trip and swimming. Um, I wanted to, I, I sometimes get a little competitive to a fault. <laughs> and um, sure, sure. so I started entering competitions. And with that, like you kind of get that bug, you get that, you get addicted. And it's, it's fun to uh, get that unbiased opinion of your beer. And, you know, if you, if you take home a little hardware, that's, that's always a nice little side thing. Sure. But uh, that, that's, that's kind of how I started. And, um, you know, Right around 2012 or so, I was, uh, you know, still at the same job I had in Seattle, structural engineering. And um, I was getting a little, I was getting pushed into the uh, middle management stuff. So project management and all that. And it, that was not what I envisioned becoming an engineer for. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't resonate with me. So um, at that point, it's kind of, I guess that's the midlife crisis that a lot of people will uh, encounter and stay uh, around long enough and uh, you'll end up being the manager, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's uh, when I started talking with one of my buddies, uh, he's my business partner, uh, Raymond, and we started talking about what we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, he, he just wanted to start a business and, um, you know, he went, traveled around the country uh, after he quit his job to see if he had any business partners, but, uh, or p- find any potential business partners, but he, you know, Nobody was dumb enough to go all in except for me. <laughs> and, um, but we, we both wanted to go in together and we we started, we ended up putting some, uh, you know, pencil to paper and working on business plans and all that 2013. And, um, yeah, that's where we are. That's how, that's how the brewery ended up getting started. And, um, I ended up quitting my job in August of 2014 when Catherine was, seven months pregnant and uh that's uh you know just immediately just got in and started uh going full bore on the brewery uh from you know build out all the way through uh production and and everything so insane thing to do with a newborn at home oh i i mean that's that's one of those beautiful things about being naive a new a new business owner because uh you don't know any better so would i ever recommend anybody do that absolutely not but uh, you know, sometimes you get you you think you're you think you're the bee's knees, and uh, th- that'll that'll <laughs> reality can hit you pretty hard. But you just got kind of have to deal with it, and 
you, you, you press forward. And, um, I like to think that we, we ended up doing something positive out of it. <laughs> sure. Sure. No, that's the entrepreneurial spirit because no. everything will try to crush you along the way. Oh yeah. Uh, you will never have any time no matter what. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing with kids too, right? You know, you never have an, the right and, and the, enough time or enough resources at that stage in your mm-hmm. life when you should be having kids to actually, you know, spend time with them or spend the money on like, you know, never do. And then of course later in life you have more time and more money. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, anyway. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? It, it, life is always working against you in some sort of way. Yeah. Well, let's talk about then, uh, you know, how you started developing an idea of what Lucky Envelope would be. But before we do that, is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends which mimics straight concentrates, but at a better price point and with a more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices in order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million can minimums. For a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with a quick six- to eight-week lead time on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft in cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at americancanning.com. All right, Barry. So you decide to start this business, you and your partner Raymond, and uh, you know you need to. This, of course, twenty thirteen breweries are on the rise. Twenty fourteen, you know things are growing. Certainly not as saturated as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what did you envision for Lucky Envelope, and how did you start to try to create an identity? Because there are were still plenty of great breweries here in Seattle at the time, and you needed to figure out an identity that was going to set you apart from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as it happens, uh, when you're starting a brewery, you just, there's, I mean, the name is incredibly important and, uh, we, we're, you know, a lot of those just involve sessions, just hanging out at a bar or at someone's house and you're just, you're spitballing ideas. And, uh, we had a bunch of ideas for names, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, named after my dog or named after the street we're on or named after our neighborhood. But then, um, what we ended up, falling on was a uh, lucky envelope brewing because uh Raymond and myself are both uh, Chinese American and uh the red envelopes that you get during uh the lunar new year um were such a important and uh very warm uh memory that we both have uh as kids uh so a little bit of history with the uh, lucky red envelope is uh uh it kind of originated during the lunar new year as um as a gift where the older generation gives the younger generation a red envelope with money in it. And the, uh, the original uh, version of it was they would uh, hang red ribbons with coins um, strung through the hole in the center um, above people's doors, doorways. And the red is supposed to ward off evil spirits and the um, money is supposed to bring you good luck. So it's evolved into the uh, red envelope. Um, and uh, for us, Maybe to the point uh, that I I learned from you at the uh, at the brewery accelerator during your branding talk was uh, <laughs> that that the the story I, probably, I didn't put you up to this. <laughs> 
I, I recommend it highly. Uh, the the story was is huge, and um, you know if there's something that's that important to you and it helps you differentiate yourself in the market, uh, that was uh, one of those things where we thought that that might be an avenue that we would like to go. Um, however, we also at that time knew that the market was um, you know very skewed to the uh, you know white, uh, white and male. And, uh, they don't have, there was not a lot of, um, Asian influence or Asian presence, Asian American presence in the brewing industry. So when we started out, our, uh, brand was actually, uh, very intentionally generic. Hmm. And, uh, what we wanted to do was make sure that we establish ourselves as a brewery first. Uh, we didn't want to, um, pigeonhole ourselves into, uh, you know, only using, uh, you know, Asian-inspired ingredients. Uh, so we opened up actually very traditionally. We had, I think, one beer that used uh, Thai lime leaves and lemongrass in there. Um, and the logo itself was uh, pretty uh, pretty simple. And um, so uh, that's that's how we opened that's up. That's fascinating. You were a little worried or conscious that uh, yes. this male white audience in craft beer might find it a little, like, not for them if it were too... Mm-hmm. Asian inspired. Yeah. And, um, you know, in our first, first week, first month of opening, we, we, we had kind of our worst fears confirmed. Really? Yeah. Uh, it was, it was nothing. It, it was, it was one of those, uh, things where it wasn't intended to be, uh, mean or, but we were kind of taken aback because, uh, you know, we opened up with, you know, your IPA, our pale ale, our Hellas lager. Uh, and then we had, a. A, a, a triple that we do with Thai lime leaves and lemongrass. And, um, you know, we, we opened up, people really liked the beers. Uh, and then maybe like two weeks later, three weeks later, we had a, a neighbor come by and he said, Oh, you have a lot of, a uh, lot of beers on tap that I wasn't expecting. Uh, one of my friends stopped by here and said that you only offer Chinese beers. And we just said, Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, that's not what we're going for, but that 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 kind of is that um hole that people can go down they can they can see something and then they can they'll, they'll, you know they'll take a mile from that little bit of an inch that you you kind of offer up but um with that we you know this kind of goes to my uh, my background maybe as an engineer and I'll I'll be kind of dorky with that <laughs> but um you know structural engineering um a building that stands above the ground is nothing without a strong foundation. So we, we didn't want to, uh, we didn't want to start using kind of not more non-traditional ingredients until we knew that we could have our base style of beers that, um, you know, were well-made and, uh, both, you know, with what people liked, what we liked, and then critically kind of with awards and all that stuff. Sure. Uh, whether it's, you know, just the good feedback where it's a clean beer and, and everything. Uh, so, that that GABF win in 2015 was huge. Where we said, okay, we I think we're we're onto something. Our I think our fundamentals, they're not quite there, but we can always improve. And uh, but that's that's a good base. And then uh, and take, it's a message to the audience here that uh, you are very capable of that. You know, technical brewing prow- mm-hmm. prowess and uh, you know, and something so classical. Yeah, and you know, it's just in when you when you're kind of growing up as a home brewer and you see all this stuff and like you just there's there's such an imposter syndrome feeling that you have sure, going sure. on so this kind of 
was a little, little poke to say like, okay, maybe you know what you're doing. And if it, it felt good, but we know that we we're knew all that. imposters. We all are. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I hear that from a lot of brewers out there and brewers who send us beer at the magazine and score incredibly highly and are, and we'll, we'll own up to that. It's like, I, I, you know, I feel like an imposter. I mean, I feel like an imposter <laughs> sitting here talking to people a lot of the time. Um, people who know much more about brewing than I do. And, uh, and I just try to keep up uh, most of the time. Um, but so I think that's a natural, you know, that's a natural thing. Yeah. It is good to have some of that validation though. And also mm-hmm. just, you know, the, to create that license then for you to say, Hey, I think we can move past this phase yeah. now. Exactly. And that's what we ended up doing. Um, we did well in another comp in the Washington beer awards with our base IPA too. So that was, uh, that was great. And that, yeah, that, those two combined gave us the, um, kind of that validation, the, uh, kind of the empowerment to kind of push on beyond our original logo. We ended up getting a redesign of the logo and we, uh, we definitely wanted to kind of embrace a little bit more of the weird ingredients. And, uh, it was, you know, not, not even weird. They're just, uh, not atypical. Sure. Sure. And, uh, we, there's a big world of ingredients out there. And, you know, of course the subset of American beer has mm-hmm. just grabbed onto a small piece of that. We're seeing more and more experimentation on that, but uh, yeah. So let's talk about that. Like how did you then start to, you know, branch out and, you know, build identities and also start thinking about how ingredients and some of these ingredients, uh, you know, that you are you know attracted to might work in specific styles. Um, so my, what I, the beers I really love to, to drink are lagers. And uh, that's the, that's kind of what we based, many of our beers, uh, many of our inspirations off of, but then as you get some confidence in, um, playing with those styles, playing with those ingredients, uh, we can definitely move beyond that and figure out how to integrate with other, uh, other styles. But, uh, the one that kind of in that, right around that time frame, um, there was some, some news coming around about, uh, an old, an ancient Chinese dig site in, um, Shangxi, China. And, um, that was the, at, I believe the oldest known beer, uh, produced, which is about 5,000 years ago. So um, what I ended up doing was just uh, cold emailing um, the the Stanford archaeologists on uh, what they were what they were doing, and uh, uh, and they were very gracious, and they just sent me the paper that they did that uh, with the research. So uh, we just we took that recipe and were, we took the the paper, read it. I read through it, and I looked at the ingredients that they found. And um, I noticed that a lot of the ingredients that were found in amphora, which are just the, the pots are lying around, which showed signs of uh, damage to the grain, uh, which indicates that they were used for brewing. Um, a lot of those ingredients were stuff that my parents would use in soups when I was little. <laughs> you know, the, the, gross, the gross soups with like, you know, that I didn't like as a kid, but I've yeah. come to definitely appreciate now. And I said, this would be a fun beer to try. And th- I think this is one of the first ones that we've, that we did. And, um, we uh we made a version of that and we just took the percentages of those ingredients which was uh you know uh pilsner there's uh barley uh job's tears barley which is seed from a grass uh lily flowers yam uh snake gourd root which is a squash so we just said let's go for this like and i think we did it for a, a lunar new year celebration one of our like our second one and uh we made a historical beer out of it and uh, people really dug it and um, it kind of was a really cool connection to all aspects like so many aspects of my past and then kind of historically 
um, in the whole, and when you take into account beer, um, it was, it was a great tie together because the significance of that find was, um, I think a lot of the, the history up until that, that dig site in China would say that, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, right around 2,500 to 3,000 years ago was like that, the birthplace of kind of beer brewing, but to find a dig site in, in China 5,000 years ago, um, with barley, which was, with barley that was found on site and the barley wasn't grown in China at that time. So there was evidence of trade happening in uh, different parts of Asia and uh, specifically for the brewing of like beer, alcoholic beverages and preserving of drinking liquid. You have this historical, you know, backing, you start making this historical beer, but it's also, you know, basically, you know, this newer iteration on a, you know, like a field beer or a, you know, it's not, you know, it's different, but it's not so different. I mean, people here are used to pumpkin beers. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, it's probably not too far from that. No. Um, and yeah, that was a great part was we had no idea how it was going to taste. Uh, and once we got together, uh, we fermented it with, uh, we just, uh, with, um, at that point, it was just modern uh, Cal Ale yeast, mm-hmm. and it was a clean one. But the lily flowers that we, that were in the beer uh, gave this really beautiful, like perfumey, flowery, raisiny character. And uh, people just said, "Yeah, this kind of tastes like a saison." And it was like, boom! Like it was, it was, it was really cool that to see that reception, and then be, people being able to relate to it, but with a different style that we weren't intending to create. Uh, and that was just. That was wonderful. We were, we were very happy with the way that came out. Uh, and then from there, we were, you know, playing around with other ingredients in um, other beers that we've done. Um, you know, I think one of our more common recurring ones is uh, using um, Lapsang Suchang tea in our Hellas, our base Hellas lager, mm-hmm. um, just because I love Lapsang Suchang tea. And then um, kind of going back to the, those lager roots that I really love is, you know, Rauk beer, smoked beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it has a unique twist to it. So, um, it's just, you know, to have the, the, the tea infusion, which is uh, black tea that's just smoked over, uh, pine needles, um, adds def- a definite smoke character, but it's much different than you would get from say a beech wood or, um, an oak smoked wheat or anything like that, any of those malts. So it's a straight malt beer, but then the smoke component comes from the smoked tea. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was going to say, like, we're now layering phenol, uh, you know, components in this beer, and I'm, I'm yeah, that sounds uh, a little bit crazy. But uh, talk to me about, about that, um, you know, because obviously, especially when you're using something like tea, which can have a, that strong kind of, uh, you know, that phenol component, mm-hmm. um you know, it can, it can get out of hand really quickly. And, you know, you also have to be careful about yeast because yeast can produce similar, uh, you know, notes, uh, depending on how you, you ferment it. Um, you know, how do you find subtlety, especially within the kind of scope of, uh, of a, a Hellas style base for a beer like that? Uh, it's, it's just experimenting and finding the right dosing, uh, whatever works with, uh, the beer that you're doing, what your goal is. Um, but surprisingly, uh, Lapsang Suchang tea, even though it's pretty intense, um, even if you go heavy on it, it still makes for a nice beer. And like the it's it doesn't overwhelm as easily as I would have expected. And uh, that's one of those fun things that we've discovered with, you know, brewing with things like tea is that uh, there there is a little bit of wiggle room. But uh, you can, yeah, you definitely can overdo it. But uh, just the 
experimentations, uh, pulling off small batches, doing small things. And that's one of those, we do that at the brewery pretty often is we have little special event days, which is kind of our, our pilot day to see like, which of these weird wacky ideas that, uh, we have, uh, could potentially become a beer that we do on a production scale. And, um, you know, we'll play around with a lot of random things. Um, and they're not necessarily just, uh, you know, Asian ingredients, but you know, we'll make, we'll make beers with, uh, Swedish fish, something like that, you know, <laughs> of course, because, but, right, but again, right. like if you're doing a keg at a time, there's a room, there's definitely room to experiment and we're not like, we're not betting the, uh, right. you know, a, sig- a whole batch on it. So there's also, you know, quite a few different tea purveyors out there. There's varying levels of quality, but then there's also teas that will interact with beer in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate, uh, you know, if you're, you know, say grabbing, looking at an ingredient like tea, and finding the right tea to work in. I mean, I've talked to, to lots of brewers about how they work coffee mm-hmm. into beer. Uh, we've had that conversation many times here on the podcast. And we've not really talked about uh, evaluating <laughs> and adding tea and what yeah. some of the, that process looks like also for um, extraction and uh, you know and how you might do that. Yeah, uh, a lot of it, you'll start out with something along the lines of cold steeping. Um, or you might, I mean, I guess the first step is you taste it as it's intended to be consumed yeah so you'll you'll temp- get like your whatever 180 degree water 170 degree water it depends on the type of tea and you just make it to the instructions that uh, whoever your tea purveyor tells you um, however you want to do it um, and we'll, we'll taste it from there uh, we'll see which ones are pleasant which ones are you know might not work but even if they don't work specifically for that uh, you know in that preparation, then we will also go to try it maybe on the cold side as well. So that maybe, I mean, that, that, that's something that pops up a lot is uh, green teas because they're not, uh, they're not fully fermented. Those leaves are, uh, there's a lot of grassy character in there mm-hmm. and, um, you'll extract a lot of that in the, um, in, you know, on the hot side and you have to be very careful with your steeping times and everything. But, um, you know, sometimes in, in some occasions, uh, the, those flavors don't necessarily get extracted in the beer if you're doing a cold extraction. Hmm. Um, but, but it depends on what you're looking for. Like if you're looking to do a hot steep for like a sanitizing or something like that, then you might get those tannins so, or those, uh, those grassy characters, uh, to come out of the tea. So you're just, uh, you need to figure out what your, uh, what your goal is, uh, and, um, you know. If you if the beer is going to get uh, packaged or anything right, like that, right. and then you just go from there. Sure, sure. There are some uh, types of uh, green tea or lapsa uh, souchong. Uh, Did I get that? Lapsang souchong. Yeah. Lapsang souchong. Okay. Sorry for my pronunciation. I can't see it uh, as we're talking about. Sure. Um, you know, are there some kind of you know baselines that you find yourself drawn to that that make for uh, more attractive beer? Um, we like. I think personally, I I, I prefer the the, the darker uh, base teas, and um, they just they have a, a depth of character to them. And even on the uh, with the green teas, uh, I know that they they definitely will extract a little bit more of that grassy character. So. Um, I enjoy them, and uh, if you if you if you kind of baby it correctly, but I think there's a lot of like if it goes wrong, it can go very wrong, and I think uh, the darker tea is a little more forgiving. But there's there's so many variations of those. I mean, you can go, jeez, there's there's varieties of tea. I mean, it's just like coffee. There's you know just grown in different regions, right, or just right. the way that they're processed. You right. know, coffee. You have the uh, you know 
it can be sun like fermented or dried in the sun or you can leave the uh the fruit on but uh like teas they can be you know dried over wood fires they can be fermented and they could be open air fermented they can be fermented in a controlled environment so you can get a lot of character out of that but um you just need to it's it's just experimentation and playing around what's the what's the addition then process look like uh or you know are you making a uh you know a liquid from the tea and then adding that into the fermentation mm-hmm. do you then or bag tea and add it into you know beer cold side hot side uh, you know what what is what do you tend to do with that we 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 treat tea as a lot like coffee um okay. so uh we we will we'll dose things in a in a brink so uh and then with a, a brink, so it's a, just a 15 gallon keg that we, we can, that's converted with uh, fittings and all that. And then we'll put our, we'll put our tea or coffee into that. And then, um, whether it's, uh, w- whether we purge it out and fill it with beer, steep it and then push it back in. And then we kind of taste it to see where it's at. Uh, you know, you might need subsequent, um, additions of tea or you just might need, might need more steeping time. Um, that's just something. Yeah. Ooh, a high intensity infusion. I yeah. like that. I yep. like that. Uh, of course, the, you know, I've, I've yeah, like, like off the top of my head, I remember Main and Mill. That's that's the one way that they do that. Do a high intensity infusion mm-hmm. and then dose back into the main tank taste in order to to kind yeah. of find the balance point on that. Yep. And um, you know, some some teas do get expressed better if we say fill it with um, uh, hot water. So will you, you know, again, it's a purge tank, but we'll fill it with a little bit of uh, water from our hot liquor tank, mm. which uh, then gets the, the a certain kind of extraction that we'd really like. And then, um, yeah, uh, some people will probably wince when I say we push it in hot, but overall, you know, that those temperatures mix up well. And um, in some, a lot of those cases at the beer at that point is going to be filtered too. So there's at least less yeast that you're going to be cooking in that, in that <laughs> process, but it, it, it overall net, it'll raise the temperature maybe one or two degrees, mm. but, um, it's a small amount, but just to get that heat, to get that, those right extra extracts that you're looking for, uh, to get that flavor component. Um, that's the other way we do it. But, mm. uh, yeah. And then it's, it's just, uh, monitoring the liquid that's both in the, in the tank itself and then in the brink, because, uh, you know, if you're sitting too long in the brink, uh, you know, coffee, you'll extract some of those green pepper flavors and tea, you'll get, you'll get tannins, you'll get grassiness, you'll get, you'll get some unpleasant things. So if you're, if you're trying to look for more flavor, but you, you got to taste that liquid and see where it is. And if it has that flavor, nope, you gotta, you, you'll just got to get more and go from there. Don't try to reuse the same stuff. Sure. Sure. Uh, and we should note that, you know, Lucky Envelope's around 1,500-ish barrels per year. It's a small, smaller brewery, yep. and uh, you all are uh, making it happen without a, you know, huge capital outlay or the craziest, you know, newest equipment out there. It's not, uh, you know, some of this is very, uh, you know, figure it out, problem solve with, uh, you know, with a limited and reasonable budget. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to say homebrewing is bad but like yeah it's that homebrew mentality that we still have to this day is like you're just scrappy you're homebrewing's not bad no homebrewing's great no but uh some some people <laughs> some people say that it uh you know oh it, it tastes homebrewy or something like that so there's there's gonna be a bad connotation but it's that it's that uh, yeah. scrappy mentality sure, and sure. uh you know we still use corny kegs in the brewery for certain things and uh but you know at some point you kind of you you'll, you'll move over to those 15 gallon brinks but uh we we play around with that but it's uh it's making things work and um you know frankenbrewing we're not we're not afraid to do that i mean those uh those grundies that you saw in the yeah, back of yeah. house uh, those those were 
those were pretty uh pretty mangled monsters before and then you just had to uh give them a little care and get a little get a buddy who knows how to do some stainless steel welding and uh then they can become usable but they're still they're still pain in the butts to deal with sure sure let's talk about some other ingredients but first abs commercial is a full service brewery outfitter Proud to offer brew houses, tanks, and small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom-designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Also, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Picked at the peak of ripeness, the fruit is pureed and frozen for optimal fresh flavor and color. But don't just take our word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfectpuree, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. So... Uh, from tea, where'd you start? Uh, what, what, what were some of the other ingredients that you started pushing into and talk to me about some of your experimentation with those and, uh, and dialing some of them in. Yeah. So the, uh, other ingredients that we, uh, we've played around with, those are a lot of them just inspired by, uh, whether it's travels, uh, from myself or my business partner or things that we kind of grew up with as well. So, um, you know the what I I mentioned the beer the 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 Belgian triple with Thai lime leaves and lemongrass, that was a big flavor that was used all the time in Thailand, uh, and that's where uh, my my spouse and I we we took a we took a trip a uh, little bit after we got married, and uh, we spent some time there and we just love that flavor combination. So you kind of look at uh, we we've been looking at we kind of look at different cultures and see uh, what what foods and what, uh, what flavor combinations are popular. And, uh, then we, we take those, taste them in, you know, the original context and then see maybe how those can get folded in potentially to a, into a beer that we would make or a beer that, uh, we would like to make. And, um, so one of the great things that we, uh, my business uh, that Ray does is, he uh, he has family in Hong Kong, so uh, kind of before pandemic, he'd go visit him. And uh, cocktail bars were a great place mm. because they the 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 style of cocktails, Hong Kong cocktail bars, yeah, the style of uh, cocktails that they would do there are were significantly different than what's you know kind of going on in the states, mm-hmm. and they're just different uh, approach to it. And you know, one time you might go there, and it's just super heavy elderflower, and uh, you know, elderflower and this and this and this, and sometimes it might be uh, rose hips. So there, there's 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 um, some inspiration that you can pull from those, and um, we'll we'll look at uh we'll look at desserts you know so if we want those to go into a um, into a stout or if we want to go into some kind of IPA version um we we like to play around with those and sometimes it could be as simple as somebody at the brewery getting very excited about one thing being fixated on that and uh i think one of our successful accidental successful things was uh, you know like oh, we did a uh, a hazy IPA with uh, that was mango lassi based, and that was just one of our former brewers, Josh, who just wouldn't shut up about mango lassies, <laughs> trying to get mango lassies to like, right. at the end of a meal or something like that. And just it kind of at some point it kind of gets in your head, and then you think, where how could we use this in a beer? So uh, you know, there's a lot of inspiration that we pull from those, and um, 
then it's just uh, it's just playing around, and that's that's one of the beautiful things about brewing is, you know, there's that there's that science part, and you need to make sure your processes are dialed in and 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 solid. But then there is the uh, the art that you can play around with that kind of more pulls that cooking side where you can you can experiment with flavors and you you start them on the pilot system or you know with small infusions and then you kind of scale up from there and you kind of see which processes work which processes won't work on a large scale and 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 see how those flavors combine and with that it combined some of the my favorite things I love to do kind of in my in my personal time which is you know cooking and uh, (laughs) and all that are there, you know, inevitably as you're experimenting through these things, you found some things that just you want to work, but they just don't work. You know, are there some ingredients that you've just found, you know, as much as you try, you, you can't make them work and, uh, you know, that you've just kind of moved on from? Uh, Define doesn't work. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we, we uh, you know, in my head, we, we've we've talked about it, but it usually came up as a joke. Is you know, like durian is the infamous like oh yeah, uh, you know, Southeast Asian fruit that is banned on subways and it just stinks and it's it, it smells. You know, in my opinion, it smells horrible, and I think in the majority of people's opinion, it smells horrible. But it, I, I think it tastes nice, and it's a delicacy that some people like, and uh, I. But it's a very polarizing thing, and um, this past for April Fools. Um, we joke around about it and we said, like, we're going to do it. And, um, it, it, it caused a lot of, uh, a lot of frowny faces, but then, um, there was, there were some people that absolutely loved durian and they ended up buying growlers of it and clearing it out. We're like, Oh, well, so, you know, personally it didn't work for me. Um, I appreciated it for what it was, sure. but then, you know, there is a, like, there's a reason why that fruit still exists and some people love it. So, um, didn't work for what I liked, but, um, you know, so my, it is my, amazing that you found that no, small number of <laughs> that. Like, I mean, if I'm looking at the Venn diagram between durian fruit fans and craft beer fanatics who will come to Ballard in, uh, you know, in Seattle, I mean, that's a, that's a narrow slice. Yeah. And we would get people just like two weeks later saying, do you have that beer lab? We said, no, it, it, I, we ended up making, um, you know, two kegs of it or something and by the by the weekend end of the weekend because it would kind of word got around people were filling up growlers it was mostly out and then two <laughs> weeks later people were saying did you still have it and we're out but um you know initially i was pushing back saying oh crap we should have just made a six barrel nobody's gonna want this we're gonna have to give it in you know little samples and people are just gonna dump it but um no it's just careful it's great. what you joke about because oh. uh, you might have to be uh, make more of that beer we do that and you know we're not again to that end we're not afraid to fail and that's uh that's you know we're not afraid to learn more um we're not afraid to get better and uh take our licks where we where we take them but um you you know we also have a healthy uh acceptance of failure as long as it's not like people getting injured or anything like sure, that sure and we want you know it's if it's a safe way and you know safe failures are the best failures i think in my yeah. opinion that's how you yeah. grow the most so then you know talk to me about some of these uh, combinations and blending you know you, one of the big things that you you employ with all of these flavorful beers is adding elements of flavor without overwhelming in that kind of flavor you're you're looking for these to add nuance but you don't want to lose sight of the beer in it either obviously that's a you know a common refrain refrain we you know we all still like beer that tastes like beer mm-hmm. that has some uh, some echoes and some you know some additional flavors in it but it still should 
you know, tastes like beer. Um, talk to me about how you then, you know, layer and blend flavors, uh, within some of these, or again, like match some of these ingredients to specific styles of beer that might highlight certain elements of those flavors in more, uh, you know, captivating ways. Yeah. Um, a lot of it comes from just an excess of, uh, patience and willingness to work with ingredients and a beer and also knowing when to kind of just walk away and, uh, don't, don't, uh, get yourself stuck in that sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> uh, but you know, for example, the, one of the, yeah, every year that's a, a, probably the most requested beer we do is a pale that we do with habanero and shishito peppers. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's what a lot of people think originally. Uh, but what, we, what we get rid of the ribs and seeds in the habaneros so that it's, it, there's a spicy kick, but it's mm-hmm. not habanero spicy. And, um, that is the, one How of the, you get rid of those. Do you hand process oh, yeah. those? Yep. Oh so my it, God. It's uh what a terrible day in the brewery. <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, night cleaning night, out peppers today. Yeah, nitrile gloves. Cause the, the, yeah. the, the capsaicin doesn't go through the nitrile, mm. but we'll still double glove those. And then, um, yeah, that's anywhere between six Eye to covering or six, goggles. I mean, yeah, I mean six to 12 of hours of, of, you know, processing peppers. And it might only be 20 pounds of peppers, but that's a lot of peppers <sighs> that fits in 20 right, pounds. Right. Um, but then, um, so you dose it, but you, you know, that the experimentation comes into play where, you know, like what's a good dosing level to start with. And then, but because peppers and natural ingredients, uh, you know, fruits, vegetables, whatever they, they vary, uh, on a daily, weekly basis, you know, depending on where you're sourcing them from. So you have to be very careful about how you're dosing it. And, uh, you just, it's, it's a taste as you go thing, so, um, we will add the, you know, a baseline amount. So like we have like a couple years of data built up and then you say, all right, let's cut that value by half or two thirds. And then you go from there because some, some of those peppers might be super duper hot. Mm. Some of them, you just might not get a, a spicy bunch at all. So you just gotta, you gotta figure it out. And you know, it's, you know, when you're doing 10 barrels of that or something, you know, it even like. 10 of the super spicy habaneros can, can make a difference, which is kind of crazy. But uh, So you're adding then fresh peppers, not, yes. not dried? No, we don't do the dried ones for that specific beer. But uh, Do you process the peppers after you've cleaned them out? Do you, yes. you know, pulse them or? Uh, we, uh, we, do the, uh, we do the clean of them and then um, we'll hold them in sanitizer for a little bit. That gets us um, uh, at least a, a degree of kind of rinse and cleaning. And then we'll f- sanitizer. I love that. Yeah. Uh, then it's a great way to, uh, to refer def- to that. I know what you're talking about. We'll uh, just call it that. and then, um, then we freeze it and then, um, you know, the freezing breaks mm-hmm. apart the walls and, um, we'll, we'll add that all in, in, uh, in a bag into the, uh, into the beer. And then just that, that's how it, it steeps. Mm. We, we've tried doing a couple things where, uh, you might try to pasteurize it in a vacuum bag and that just, that kills that fresh flavor. Hmm. So again, it's just, it's a lot of experimentation and just layering those in the the way. And yeah, after, after seven years, you kind of get a, you got to get, get a feel for it. And uh, so I, I feel like it's, um, it's, it becomes a little more natural now, but you know, again, you, you learn when you're training people up, our awesome brewers, Peter and Megan, that um, it, there's a lot that goes on in my head that if I don't vocalize correctly, there's a very easily easy miscommunication between the two of us, uh, three of us. 
Sure. Do you adjust recipes in any way, uh, you know, in, in terms of kind of grain and grist to uh, knowing that there's going to be that kind of heat? Uh, you know, do you try to, you know, push maybe a little more residual sweetness to it or dryness for that matter? Um, you know, or is, uh, is it more just a addition to a standard paleo? Uh, we, we definitely will adjust things, uh, whether, uh, I think the big thing for us is the alcohol level. Um, I think in my personal opinion, I think a lower alcohol beer works better with that fresh mm. pepper flavor. Um, whether it's just the extraction or just my personal preference, I, I honestly don't know, but I think that kind of like, you know, five, five to 6% range for that specific beer is the way that it kind of it pops up, but say for our, our Lapsang Suchang Hellas, that's just, uh, that's our base Hellas right. that we go with. And, um, if we have a couple kegs of that lying around or five barrels and we can do an infusion, um, it's a lot of fun and yeah, we'll definitely jump at that chance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after peppers, are there other, any other, uh, interesting ingredients or, or some layered ingredients that you find, uh, work with each other really well? Yeah. Um, that pandan leaves. Uh, that, that was the one that we just did recently with a barrel aged beer. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a grass that grows in, uh, Southeast Asia and it's used in a lot of, uh, a lot of desserts there. And, um, our, our brewer Peter described it really well as saying it's, um, kind of a, if creme brulee had a little whiff of grass and was a perfume, it's just this beautiful, <laughs> perfumey, flowery, sweet, caramelly, Hmm. grass and it's it's absolutely delicious and that's why they you know that's why they make uh like a lot of uh you know cream-based desserts is because you can do your hot steep of your milk with those and it just adds this beautiful complex layer of of of, you know caramelly sweetness and just floral grass it's it's a really fun one and then throwing that into our barrel asian imperial stout it's a it's a way to get that kind of vanilla character but with a little bit of a twist uh, that one is probably one of my favorite uh, blends that we've we've played around with, and then um, how do you go about adding it? Uh, we will do a uh, well that that's one that we will actually pasteurize. Mm. So we'll uh, we'll put it in, we'll vacuum seal it, and then we will submerge it in uh, hot a water sous vide for, sous vide exactly nice. Uh, and then um, we just we bag it, and then we will throw it in so that uh, there's no less of a risk of. Uh, contamination of the ingredient, but also, um, uh, just to extract those flavors and, um, you know, working those into, you're not pasteurizing on the back end as beer comes out. Exactly. Be careful about those ingredients as they go in. Definitely. One of the really fun ones that we've done was, um, you know, like five spice. Uh, we, we did that into our, uh, we do every year for our lunar new year celebration. We'll do a, um, a beer we call double happiness and, uh, with that, uh, that's, you know, Imperial Stout that we do barrel aged and, uh, the five spice works, you know, it's a very popular, uh, sweet, uh, savory side, uh, spice that you'll, you'll taste in a lot of things. Like what comes to a lot of people's mind is like the five spice duck that you'll have at a Chinese restaurant, like during a, a festival or some, some celebration. But, um, I remember making a, a tort one time using five spice so that you know, five spices has that like ginger and clove and anise. And, uh, there's, there's a bunch of uh, a cinnamon and, uh, the fifth one, I do not recall, (laughs) but you know, the, the five spices can also vary, but, um, those flavors go super well with chocolate. So in my head, that's where I just made that leap. Like, Oh, chocolate and like, you know, Imperial stout, that's a rich dessert that kind of mimics 
the uh, the five spice chocolate tort that I I remember making once, and um, that was a that was a really well received one. It's not a not a traditional flavoring, but um, yeah, it's a fun one, and you know those are flavors that will that can go into beer, and it just you know Lunar New Year's during the winter time, so it almost it's it's a variation of a spiced you know imperial stout. And, uh, I think, I think people have really appreciated that. And when we do it, we're not looking to, uh, we're not looking to just like throw all these flavors at, uh, at the consumer, but we want to just, just add like some nuance in there make it interesting that make your, that makes your eyebrow raising. Hmm. What's this? And then you have to go in for a second sip, but we also don't want to make it like a, something where you're just confused. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And you, does your addition process look like tea with that one with a high intensity infusion that you then dose back in or? Uh, that one, those can be, uh, those can vary. Uh, but uh, again, those, a lot of times there'll be a spice, like a pasteurization. Mm. Um, and then though spices for the most part will go directly into the tank. And those in particular require an extra amount of patience because it's really easy to overspice. And uh, we, we undershoot by a lot. And then we'll just add a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit yeah. more. So it can take, it can take up to, you know, two weeks to get those levels right. But, you know. How do you get that to integrate properly in the beer, especially if you're putting a powder of spice mm-hmm. on top of a liquid in the tank, then making sure that that integrates properly in the liquid can be a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. And that's just agitation mm. at that point. Um, you know, we, we make it a slurry. So we use hot water mm. and then vacuum seal that pasteurize it and that again helps draw out some of those essential oils and then um you kind of squeeze it into the squeeze in the tank and it's always fun when you miss the tank or miss the miss the little uh manway or the little port in the tank and it just looks like somebody took a poop on <laughs> on the top of your fermenter oh, and it great. looks great yeah it's a great visualization um we don't uh we don't post those pictures uh on social media yeah, yeah. uh but you know you just add that in there and then um you know just time for them to soak. And then, um, you know, you just do your tank rouses when you need to, to try to integrate it. And then after a day or two, you'll see where the spice level is. And then you, you just add a little bit more. Sure. Sure. Are there any other uh, particular standout ingredients? Um, I'm pushing you hard. On yeah. The, uh, on yeah. The there's a lot, uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. No, those are the ones that like come out as like the ones that that have worked really well. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, in terms of uh, other beers, uh, you know, are there any other styles that uh, you might uh, consider yourselves learning on right now and, uh, you know, pushing some some knowledge so that you can uh, continue to develop and, and uh, improve those beers? Um, in terms of like base styles or sure, sure. whichever. Um, is there, is there something that you're pursuing right now that, uh, you know, in that kind of scope of learning, trying yeah. to, trying to figure out and solve some problems around? I mean, it's, it's always our loggers. We're, yeah. we're always striving to, uh, to try to, to try to get those into a place that we're, um, happier with them. Like we're, we're already happy with a lot right. of them, but, um, playing around with more challenging, more obscure beers that you might not have references to. And I know that, um, you had a recent article posted uh, by Evan Rail, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's Mister Check Beer. Yeah, and yep. Uh, he he did the Tamave Pivo, and that's that's one of those beers that we're actually looking to work on. And uh, like those dark lagers, uh, they just just due to popularity or maybe lack thereof, uh, those aren't beers that we get to experiment 
around with on a frequent basis. And when we do, we want to make sure they're as, you know, they're done as well as possible. But, you know, brewing is always an iterative process. So, um, you know, we, we love that. We love that style of beer and we want to make that. And, um, yeah, we're, you know, we're actually working on a collaboration with, um, with Annie Johnson, Evan, Evan rail, uh, let's see, uh, Marcus Baskerville and, uh, and Bottle Works, which is a local Seattle brewery. And we're going to try to, we're going to try to make a, uh, make the perfect check dark lager. The, the, oh, I, I wish it was perfect. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a good one. But, what uh, a, what an amazing lineup of folks to be it's working fun. on that. It's That's fun. Exciting. It's a, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's always fun when you have a, a friend that can just say, Oh, let me ask some people. And then the, the, you know, she can, she can wrangle the, she can wrangle the team and it's a very fortunate position to be in. And uh, we're really happy to have Annie as a friend. How are you going to figure out how to decoct on your system, Barry? I mean, cause uh, <laughs> I don't know. Ooh, I yeah. don't know that you can make this. Yes. Uh, it's uh, Evan's standards. I know. Uh, unless you decoct. Uh, our whole thing is, uh, well, Evan's a cool guy and he understands, <laughs> but, um, he's flexible. He's flexible. Yes. Uh, we know that it's not going to be a, uh, a traditional Czech style lager in sure, that respect sure. with the decoction. And, um, but you know, I, we're, we're working with our system and I think, um, there's a lot that we can do to, uh, to make the beer right. And, uh, you might, you might have that one lacking thing, which yes, in, in the traditional sense is it's, it is a major thing, but, um, I don't think, uh, not having decoction as a method uh, should prevent anybody from approaching loggers, uh, whether they're traditionally decocted or not. Um, decoction is to me just another ingredient. And uh, if you're, you know, my, my whole thing always goes back to like a burger and um, you know, sometimes like, you know, sometimes you want a great burger and uh, to me decoctions like uh, caramelized onions, you can, you know, you can, you need that, you need that meat, you need the, uh, you need the meat to be perfect. You need that, like, you know, that ground chuck brisket, like all those things in there, the fat to meat ratio, you need uh fresh toppings. You need uh, that bread has to be great. And, um, you know, if you, if you don't have that caramelized onion, sometimes you don't miss it, but sometimes there's nothing, there's not a substitute for caramelized, caramelized onions as well. So, um, you know, I think we can, we, I have the confidence that we can make a, a really tasty, well-made beer, but we need to, you know. I have Evan, every, Evan, Evan's a cool guy. I have every confidence that you all, <laughs> that that group of people can make uh, some a fantastic yeah. beer. Sure, sure. Well, let's pull back out. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the big picture for Lucky Envelope. Um, you know, you're now seven years into it. You've gone through these phases. You're, you've, you've grown more confident in your ability to express what the lucky envelope brand means to you. Um, you've, you've gone through this kind of development. Uh, you know, what do you see on the near term horizon? What's the long term horizon? What do you hope to achieve with lucky envelope, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what does success look like for lucky envelope? Yeah. So, um, obviously the, the first thing of success is for us to be able to stay in business and continue to grow. But as we've done, we grow, we, our intentions are to grow at a measured pace. Um, but, uh, the, the nice part with the crew that we have and the way that we've, uh, I think uh, the way I feel like we, we structure and run the brewery, um, is there's a lot of feedback and a lot of back and forth with us and our staff. And, um, they are, they're very uh, good at sustaining themselves and they can, uh, they know how to run the ship and they can, uh, they know how to uh, make those corrections when, when the corrections need to happen. And with that, uh, that's allowed a lot of time for both myself and, uh, and Ray to, 
kind of branch out and pursue some of those things that we're really uh, excited about and things that we're passionate about. Uh, for for Ray, he uh, he does a lot of work with conservation, so he works with Washington Wild, and he wants to pursue a little bit more of that. Those um, you know, working on boards of uh, committees for uh, for DEI. Um, mm-hmm. So he he's on the board for Washington Wild, the the organization for DEI, and uh, he's also uh, chair uh, co chair of the Washington Brewers Guild uh, DEI program. Uh, for me, um, I've grown up in this beer industry being supported by so many people. So the big thing that I want to do is uh, share my knowledge. I want to help people that are getting into the industry, and uh, the way that uh, one of my friends uh, really described it really well is um, with if you want to try to increase uh, diversity in the brewing industry, you don't want to like, you know, the brewing industry is a, say a deck of cards. You don't want to be pulling cards from somebody else's uh, hand to, uh, to supposedly make yourself a little more diverse. Uh, what you want to do is you want to get new cards. You want a new deck introduced and, and, uh, to bring people in the industry, um, foster that love of craft beer, foster that, uh, thirst for knowledge. And, uh, to that end, that, that's that's what I like to do. So I like to uh, I'm, I'm a member of uh, the the Brewers Association uh, mentorship com- uh, group, mm-hmm. where uh, they have a they have a program where they uh, they have a it's like ten weeks, five five people, and um, you get to mentor for uh, for various positions like leadership, uh, social media, marketing, um, and I do uh, quality and. Um, and brewery operations. So I get to meet a lot of, a lot of aspiring professionals and professionals who are looking to advance. And I can try to give some of my perspective on kind of what I've learned starting a business and growing up in the industry and, you know, continue to pursue knowledge. So um, between that and, um, you know, being involved with the CBC seminar subcommittee too, um, those are all, all ways that I like to give back and at least try to try to spread my knowledge around and share it and um, try to foster um, love and and passion for the industry. So um, between all those and then just still continue to just like dive into into technical papers and and all that. That's, you know, we want to we want to grow. We want to continue to be successful and we want to make sure our quality stays there. But to be able to give back and, uh, you know, share, share parts of ourselves and other people so that they can they can start their legacy and um that, that that's where we're passionate that's fantastic and of course you know everyone wants to be able to express who they are in their business and their life and uh you know it's great that uh, things are getting to that point now with craft beer where you can be who you are absolutely and, uh, and people find you for yeah. that also that uh, the audience for craft beer is bigger than it was you know that uh um, you know, the, the craft beer is reaching communities that may not have felt that it was relevant to them before. You know, mm-hmm. that's an important part of all of this work. Again, not just trying to dice up the pie in one different way. Let's bake a few more pies and make it bigger mm-hmm. so that, uh, you know, the communities can have craft beer uh, and feel that connection to it in ways that they may not have Absolutely. Know, earlier before. So. That's fantastic. Thanks for joining me on this. Uh, for nearly 30 years, g Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. NA is no problem with the Alchemator from ProBrew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Trust American Canning with your packaging needs. ABS Commercial 
is a full-service brewery outfitter for brewers across the country and craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Of course, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Let us know this content matters. Support our work with uh, great writers like Annie Johnson, Evan Rail, uh, and others who are you know fantastic. Annie's of course a regular contributor to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and, and writes the uh, No Rests for the Wicked column for the magazine with great co- uh, great column every every issue for extract brewers out there. Um, and is of course a wonderful person also and a good friend of yours. Good friend of yours. We're here in Seattle and I didn't get to see her unfortunately on this trip, but maybe maybe next time I'm up here. Um, Barry, if people want to learn more about you, about uh, Lucky Envelope and uh, the beer that you're making here in Seattle, where do they find you all? Um, they can find us, uh, you know, luckyenvelopebrewing.com. That's our website. And uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Lucky ENV Brewing. And um, yeah, that's where we are and we're, we're out and about. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. This is, uh, it's great to see you again. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Can't wait to see you again in the future. It won't be long. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.